Welcome to Emerging Europe Talks, bringing you expert insight on innovation and technology, sustainable social and economic growth, business, politics and culture, and helping you navigate the Emerging Europe region. Hosted by Andrew Robel. Remember to visit the show's page, emerging-europe.com forward slash multimedia, or check the hashtag EETalks on social media. This is another episode of Emerging Europe Talks Sustainable Impact, and my name is Andrew Robel. Today, I am joined by Simona Morsets, who is the president of the Ljubljana Pride Association. Simona, welcome to Emerging Europe Talks. Hi. All right, so let's kick it off. And uh, the first question is quite, well, I would say groundbreaking because after two lost referendums in Slovenia, obviously on LGBT rights, Slovenia's constitutional court ruled that a ban on same-sex couples marrying and adopting children was unconstitutional. And that is forcing a change in the Slovenian law. But is it that straight? That was what, a couple of weeks ago, right? But that is still not certain. What is actually happening in, in the LGBT community? What are the voices and what will we see in Slovenia in the coming months and years? So let me just give a little bit of context. Yes, so Slovenia is a country that basically decriminalized homosexuality in the late 70s while we were still one country called Yugoslavia. And Slovenia was also the first, still being one of the republics of Yugoslavia in 84, to have a lesbian gay festival, film festival of all the former so-called Eastern Bloc and Yugoslavia, if you could call it. So why I'm saying this is because, of course, it's very important to also understand a historic context of a certain country to understand also progression of human rights in a certain area. So basically, the activist community started to build up from the mid-80s. And after independence in the 90s, you really have a lot of efforts from a small but very loud gay and lesbian activist groups or individuals that that were able to be heard. So there were attempts already with the first Slovenian constitution in 1992 to allow for so-called same-sex marriage. But because the Slovenian constitution at that time and probably even today is one of the more progressive in the world, it has a lot of rights enshrined on the constitutional level and uh, spoken out rights that uh, I think uh, if we would have to adopt the same constitution today, we probably wouldn't be able to get to that document in the same way, right? So, but unfortunately, even though there were attempts, it was not successful. So this, we're talking about the early 90s. So then for pretty much two decades, marriage equality fight has been going on. And the first time we actually had a first legislation around that was unfortunately even adopted from the right, right-wing government. And we, we had adopted a law which would allow, which allowed same-sex couples to register. But it was uh, ruled afterwards even also by the Constitutional Court as discriminatory per se. And it had to be uh, dealt away with. 
And as a consequence of that, there was an attempt to change the family code. And hence, in 2012, the government, the liberal government at that time, tried to uh, get through a package of like a whole family code changes where a very important change would have been also to allow for same-sex couples to enter into a union that would be called marriage and it would be under the same rights as heterosexual couples. And while that family code was adopted through the parliament, there was a referenda, as you already said, by the right-wing opposition organized very strongly and the referenda voted against this change in law. And then what happened is that in 2015, we had almost a deja vu situation where, again, there was an attempt to modify the family code that would, again, allow for uh, same-sex couples to enter into, into marriage. And again, it happened uh, not completely the same, but still, unfortunately, a referendum with a negative result, which again resulted in the law not being passed finally, even though again it was passed by the parliament. But at the same time, at, that, or at around that time, what happened is that there was another uh, law submitted in the parliament, which then basically went a step back, which allowed for same-sex couples to enter into a civil partnership. Right. So we, there was this, the, the step back was not to have exactly the same rights as uh, heterosexual couples who could get married. But it did. That law was good in a sense because it took care of discriminatory laws across the le- different kinds of legislation. So in about 70 different laws that were discriminatory before to homosexual couples, because you also couldn't have a civil union, this was then dealt with. If you look at the entire region, even the same-sex union is already something because out of the 23 countries that Emerging Europe covers, only five really allow for any type of unions. So that would, you know, that's already something. No, no, definitely for something and it's very important. And then what happened is that parallel to that, there were two separate private uh, claimants who went the j- judicial way. So there were two separate court rulings, uh, two separate processes, and one was particularly focused on the right to enter into marriage, like equally to other heterosexual couples. And there was a separate court procedure uh, to have access as a same-sex couple to enter into the procedure to be eligible for a common adoption. Because the previous law that I talked to you about right now, the civil union law, already allowed out of that the practice that if you had a biological child that was biological of one of the two people in the couple, the other one could adopt, even if it was a same-sex couple, right? But of course, that's very different than if you can have a joint adoption. And so this was now the the, uh, couple of months ago at uh, at the uh, beginning of summer. The Constitutional Court finally delivered its first time in the history of Slovenia content ruling on LGBT rights, because all the rulings before that were ever on these topics were procedural. And so content ruling where it actually, in both court cases, that yes, there was discrimination in in the law and this has to be changed. And a very important political context was that uh, in uh, spring we had elections and uh, in these elections, liberal left coalition won. Uh, So also there was, uh, again, a good political will to then just um, actually remedy this quite fast through legislation. 
And of course, again, it happened that the right-wing political parties, as well as civil society organizations, started to mobilize and started to threaten with another referendum. However, what has changed between 2015 and 2022 is our national referenda legislation. Because in the meantime, we managed to change the legislation in a way that now it is no longer possible to have a referendum that would allow for people to rule on human rights issues. So what's going to happen to the ruling right now? So what happened is that the parliament adopted new law that just corrects one article, which basically says that two people can enter into marriage, not just a man and a woman can enter into marriage. And then we also have a two-chamber system in Slovenia. So the council, yeah, the second chamber vetoed, so they gave a negative ruling. So it had to go back to the parliament and the parliament had to rule again with absolute majority. So it got voted positively again with absolute majority. And now actually this is implemented in law. Because also the ministry positioned itself very clearly that according to the current situation right now, a referendum on this issue would not be admissible anymore. And this is also the legal opinion. So tell me why it has taken so long, you know, for a country that is so progressive. Because, you know, if you look at Slovenia, it is one of the, I would say, richest countries in emerging Europe, most developed countries in emerging Europe. I also remember when Emerging Europe started its awards program back in 2019, we already had then a fantastic initiative by the city of Ljubljana, which actually won the award in uh, London. So why is it so? And, and how, how do you compare, in a way, Slovenia to the rest of emerging Europe, which is, you know, like I said, only five countries out of 23 that we cover really allow any type of unions for same-sex couples? Well, first of all, I would say that Slovenia in its core is still a deeply conservative country. There's always kind of like an internal clash between being quite liberal in some aspects, but in on the other hand side, being also very conservative at the same time. And unfortunately, conservative in a very particular way, I would say, in a way of being a little bit more closed than, you know, we have, we always try to understand what's happening in other countries like Malta, like Portugal, like Ireland, that are small countries, small democracies that are uh, deeply religious and have strong religious institutions and have uh, conservative legislation around topics like LGBT rights or abortion rights and so on. And we try to see how in those countries you are able to make a progress around legislation in this regard. And we try to see what is comparable and what is not comparable. And unfortunately, what is very interesting is that very often we encounter the fact that even though somehow on paper, some of those countries might seem more religiously conservative, but the average person on the street is more open-minded, is more accepting, it's more allowing. In Slovenia, because we, I think also we lived for uh, quite uh, many decades under a socialist regime, we have a more, the, the presence of the Catholic Church is strong, but it's different. It's present different with people's lives. So it means that you have a vast, even majority of population that live a fairly atheist way of life, but that still underneath hold very closed-minded 
and conservative in that sense worldviews. And they're not so, we are not necessarily culturally so open towards uh, difference, you know? So Slovenia is a very homogeneous country. You have a country of one predominant ethnic group of over 90% of the population. And you have, you know, we're talking about 98, 99% of all people being white in the country. You know, so there is a very, very deep lack of cultural diversity. And I think that trickles down in other spheres then. And I think then for LGBT people, we are very often then very strongly othered. You know, we are the ones who don't fulfill the rules of normalcy. We are, you know, the queers in this negative Anglo-Saxon way then that we kind of like spoil the purity of whatever is supposed to be the Slovenian way of life, culture, tradition, a nation, you know. And this is deeply, deeply embedded in uh, structures, in uh, mindsets of people and in politics. You know, I would love to see where the center conservative party in Slovenia would have a debate about marriage from like a proper conservative perspective where their ambition should be that gay people should marry because, you know, that's the more proper way of life rather than because actually the the more progressive LGBT community would say, well, let's get away from this uh, conservative concept of marriage, you know, as a way of organizing our families and our life, right? But no, actually here you really have to, we live in a, in a different way. And in that sense, we are, I think, still very much part of this uh, wider emerging Europe and Balkan and former Yugoslavia cultural and historic context. And we can't get away, get, get away from that, you know. So I think this is the reason of the more conservative approach. But if we look at, you mentioned Yugoslavia, for example, but if we look at Montenegro, it's one of those countries that actually allows same-sex marriage. And uh, I have to admit that I was really positively surprised, obviously, when I heard the news. And, you know, if you look at countries like Lithuania or, you know, which you would think is is a very progressive country or maybe Poland, not necessarily at the moment with the current political team, but there are other countries. And then we also have Hungary, which, you know, with Mr. Orban being in power for quite some time, not everyone knows that Hungary does allow same-sex unions. I think that especially for the context of former Yugoslavian republics or the countries that came out of that political context, Yugoslavia, not all the republics were on the same level and not all the republics had the same even legislative framework. So, for example, in 1977, when homosexuality was decriminalized, it was not decriminalized in all the republics of Yugoslavia. So it was in Slovenia, it was in Croatia, it was in Montenegro, and it was in the autonomous region of Vojvodina in the north, northern Serbian region. In part right? of Serbia, yeah. But the rest, yeah, but the rest not, right? So, and if you look at the, only the decriminalization question of homosexuality, Bosnia didn't decriminalize homosexuality until the late 90s. So 30 years level, yeah. of difference, even on the topic of decriminalization, of uh, these old uh, sodomy laws, you know, that forbade homosexual intercourse uh, for men. Even on that level, you can see that there was there's very, very different framework, cultural and also historic and legal that allowed for certain things in the societies. 
And that's why, you know, if you look a little bit into history like that, then you can also see that Montenegro in that case was a little bit on the more progressive side when it comes to these type of issues. And not many people who are not less necessarily part of this region or, or would know this type of history would necessarily understand that. It's very easy to look at the Balkans at one as one region, as, you know, anyone, everyone being more or less uh, the same. But, but there are differences. Yeah, there are differences. That's why, you know, it's, uh, I think there's a lot of different dynamics. One has to look at how to create a society that is more open and more progressive or more liberal, and there's a lot of factors to that, you know, and there are cultural factors and social economic factors and historic factors. And I think that Slovenia, on one hand side, has a lot of good fundamentals for a more liberal and more progressive approaches, but it still battles its own fights when it comes to, to certain aspects. And I think this, this you know, situation with uh, accepting LGBTIQ plus people as a part of the average general population that uh, everyone could live with the same rights and with the same freedom, we are, we are not quite there yet as a society. Let's sort of look at the workplace a little bit, because that is, I believe, a huge challenge for LGBT people to to find themselves in a workplace and sort of bring themselves fully and be able to actually work freely in that environment. And it's it's really interesting if we look at McKinsey's survey and report. In general, in the US, you would say that about 5% of women say they are they identify themselves as part of the community and about 4% of men. When it comes to corporate structures, the percentage is significantly lower. But it's also you know, if we look at progression at work, we don't really see that many LGBT people sort of running companies or being in the, in management boards. Three in 20 LGBT women believe that their sexual orientation will negatively impact their career advancement. And when it comes to men, it's six in 20. So that's even, even higher. Why do you think it is so? And, uh, how can we make sure, you know, we are able to change that and what it is like in Slovenia and further afield in when it comes to Central and Eastern Europe? I mean, I would say that when you are told all your life that if you live as a homosexual person, then leave it behind closed doors, stay in the closet. Uh, this is, a, you, you know, we don't want to see this in public spaces. We don't want to see on the street. Keep this at home behind closed doors. Keep it in your, you know, like keep it in your bedroom. You hear this kind of pressure and this kind of notion everywhere. You hear it in, in the school system. You hear it in the media a lot. You hear it in the political discourse. It's uh, this, you know, kind of very, very deeply entrenched homophobic framework. And so when you, when you grow up like that and when you live like that, you know, you, for, for the generations that you know, my generation and older, you know, this is somehow, you know, a lot of people internalize that. So in general, it's, it's not easy, you know, like I went to high school more than 20 years ago and it, and in my high school 20 years ago, we didn't have people like those. This was my perception, you know, like I was someone who was a, a, a young high school pupil that was into, you know, debate and these topics started to appear and so on. And I, uh, I felt I was progressive and so on. But in my rural small town, in my high school, 
still me and all my colleagues, we, we all articulated, even when we discussed amongst ourselves, is that, yeah, this is, is an issue, but it was something for the capital, you know. It was like we didn't have people like that amongst us. This was our attitude, you know. And now, 20 years later, this same gymnasium is one of our biggest allies as from Ljubljana Pride, and we work with them and we do regular workshops for the teachers and for the pupils and at the same high school. And now in many classrooms with every generation, we have people who come out already as teenagers in that same school, in that same rural environment. So things are changing. So I would say that the statistics that you mentioned, you know, are also statistics of another generation, I would say, the generation that is present at the job market now. I deal a lot with young people. So I'm thinking about the statistics in 20 years, like the young people who are entering the job market within the next five years and what they're going to encounter and how the society is changing. And I, we also work here a lot with statistics and we try to, to see what's coming and, and how people respond and so on. And we have a very different view, actually, what's coming, because right now we had in 2020 published a national research here in Slovenia that is done every 20 years on youth general, you know, like big research on what's happening with the trends with the young population. And in the last 10 years, something changed significantly. Right now we have uh, less than 60% of young people who identify in their formative teenage years, who identify as straight. And that doesn't mean that the rest of the 40% automatically identifies as lesbian or gay, but they don't identify as straight. And they don't identify as straight with a certain consciousness around what does that mean. That's why, you know, also the statistics and, and how people perceive their sexual orientation and gender identity also, and, and the generations that are coming, I think that there will be much more people coming to the job market who leave these identities and who are also much more free in expressing them. They're coming out younger. By the time they're in their mid, their early 20s, they already have formed relationships or, you know, that are outspoken and not closeted and so on. So I think this is the one thing is that the, the employers also need to be ready for that because this is the future and this is the reality. So on one hand side, if you want to have talented people feeling safe and welcome in your businesses that are going to be very productive workers and, and you know, creative workers and going to be able to be part of uh, making money for you in your business, then you also it's important to also create an environment where these young people, and they're not insignificant in a number. This is what I'm trying to say. These are relevant statistical numbers. They are going to be looking for workplaces that are inclusive, that are LGBT friendly, that are progressive in that regard, that allow for young person's individuality and their expression and so on to be taken in consideration. I think this is one part of that story. And the other part of the story that I would like to say is because we, we work a lot in Ljubljana Pride to support organizations which can include also corporate corporations or, or corporate partners, how to transform their whole structure as an organization, as a company, to become more inclusive, to become more LGBT friendly. And always when we talk with the organizations or with the, with the companies, we also tell the need, but also, you know, you have to consider your clients. One thing is that amongst your employees, uh, you know, the interns you get, you know, like the people you work with, you will have a community that, you know, you'll have people who belong to the LGBTIQ plus community and they're part of your organization, part of your company. But on the other hand side, you come across with so many clients. 
if you run a store, you know, if you, uh, I don't know, if you run a travel agency, what type of employer you are, you are either selling some product to someone or you are coming in contact with clients who purchase some services from you. And more and more of these clients are more and more conscious about the fact that they do want to be treated respectfully if they are LGBT themselves. But also they want to support brands and they want to support, you know, like a certain ideology also through how they practice their consumerism, you know. And I think people are, young people are more conscious about that, you know, that uh, there are certain trends within that. And of course there are, I would never support companies just in trying to pinkwash, you know, just trying to do some acts of uh, fake symbolism in a way without deeper uh, change. Hence, so I would always say, you know, don't treat your customers or your clients patronizing because pinkwashing is patronizing, actually. Can you give us some examples of pinkwashing that you have seen yourself? Because I think that's quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think you can, for example, go because, you know, I'm, I'm president of Ljubljana Pride Association, right? So uh, you can go to many prides around Europe or around the world that are commercialized, for example, right? And one of the dynamics you will see at those prides is that you will have numerous companies from insurance companies to banks to all kinds of big we corporate corporations. We see that in the UK, yes. Yeah, and, and, you know, and they'll be, they'll be like present there with the, the, like their promotion people there and they'll be giving out gifts and tokens and whatever and, and so on. Because I think they have an understanding that the LGBT community is a good client potentially. And for that one day in the year, they will make a rainbow package or they'll make rainbow post-it or they'll make rainbow shoelaces just for the, for the people. But actually they're not doing anything structurally. They're not changing themselves as an employer to become more inclusive of LGBT staff that they employ. They're not necessarily doing anything in addition to support the fight against the discrimination of LGBT people through, you know, like other means that a company has, like social corporate responsibility or, you know, and so on. They just have a, you know, kind of a commercial take on how to get the LGBT community as a client, but without really caring about uh, more than just the money. So I think these things we can see, we can see a lot for example, we have here in Slovenia some, uh, you know, very quickly you will see with like advertising agencies, right? Where on one hand side, the advertising agencies might want to go when it's lucrative for them with some kind of a social bit responsible campaign that might also support LGBT rights. But then on the other hand side, they take on clients and they work commercially for clients that are deeply, deeply homophobic. And they will do political campaigns for their clients that directly target LGBT people in a very, very negative way, right? So the same company, you know, like the same advertising agency will be, will run this in parallel. And then you're like, what is this, you know? So for these this kind of things for me are when I say that this is pinkwashing and this is patronizing towards the LGBT community when companies try to do that. So I would always say, that the future is much more open and much more rainbow and uh, that it's a good investment to think about this as a as an employer but structurally yes structurally yeah structurally definitely i have to say that i think it was last year i met with a if you look at central and eastern europe in general the region is quite strong at uh, it and tech and 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 so on now I remember speaking to the director of a large it 
firm. I won't say which country that is because I don't want to put any labels there. But I was really surprised when I heard that they were not doing anything to help LGBT people. And I said, you have to have workers. You have to have employees who are LGBT because it's, it's impossible that you don't. But they were not doing anything. So even when it comes to employer branding activities, there was absolutely nothing. Do you think that companies can still afford to do that at this time or it's impossible? I think in our context here, yes, they can still. That's why I was talking about the future that it's coming. Because right now uh, we are at kind of like a tipping point, you know, up until now, it was not lucrative for companies to expose themselves as LGBT friendly or as supportive of LGBT community and so on. And so mostly there was not just not interest, there was hostility if LGBT community tried to approach corporations or for possibilities of corporate sponsorship or something like this, the reaction was usually very, very negative. So now it's starting to change a bit. And you have more corporations also in our regional context that do have, uh, maybe because they are really global and they have in other countries and in other regions of Europe, strong pro-LGBT internal campaigns or mechanisms and so on. And they bring these mechanisms also when they come to our countries and, and open up their branches. There are companies now coming with a bit of awareness, but also locally, what happens is that locally we've always had some allies with like this small and medium enterprises, you know, like the more localized businesses of people that are supportive and so on. So this we've had, but let's say proper big national or nationally operating corporations until now they didn't, they really didn't, they didn't have to, they considered that it would harm actually their reputation. And I think this is something that uh, we will see more changes in the next probably 10 to 15 years to the point that I think more companies will start also thinking about this. But I would say at this point, yes, I think in countries like Slovenia or the wider region, companies can still afford not to do anything for their LGBT staff or the you know visibility or anything like this. One more question related to, because we were talking about, you know, international business sort of perhaps... I don't want to say forcing, but requiring that there is more LGBT awareness in companies because they are buying services from companies, especially when it comes to the IT sector. But what do you think is the role of institutional organizations like the European Union in general or the Council of Europe, the UN, and so on and so on in sort of encouraging more support for LGBT people across the emerging Europe region? I think the institutions play a crucial role. I would say, from my perspective, the most crucial role next to civil society, because our political history of the last, you know, decade and century even is such that we are very, very institution led, right? Countries. We have in emerging Europe, we have very weak civil societies. We don't have a history of a hundred plus years of very strong trade union movements, like, for example, in Germany or Scandinavian countries. We don't have very strong civil society embedded organizations and, and so on and so forth. So our civil society is fairly young. It's mostly merged from the mid 80s to the 90s. 
it's weak. It's malnourished in every, every way, especially also in context of, uh, if you compare to more Western democracies. So the, all these kind of human rights related changes have been coming to us in the last 30 years via strong, strong leadership or presence or even sometimes uh, forced from the international institutions. You know, in most of the of our countries that have joined by now the EU, if there would not be certain type of pre-accession requirements in the area of human rights, we would not have seen them, right? And especially we were talking about the workplace, you know, so the European directive on equality in the in the workplace, you know, it, it was a crucial thing, for example, also for countries like Slovenia. Then uh, anti-discrimination legislation. We would have not seen uh, anti-discrimination law uh, in Slovenia or uh, if, if it hadn't been the, the protocol number 12 to the European Convention on Human Rights, right? And this is, again, an initiative on the international uh, human rights advancement level. And these are crucial steps also in the advancement of human rights of LGBTIQ plus people, right? So this gives us grounds to fight our battles. Because our countries are quite prone to follow international legal norms and then to do something around that, it gives us a stronger standpoint. And then also, you know, our national institutions, like from ministries to parliament and so on, feel more pressure to also oblige. And so I think the here it's it's really crucial, you know, like the European Union, if the European Union adopts any kind of directive, particularly that goes in uh, synchronizing the rights of LGBT community throughout EU states, like, you know, with free trade and (laughs) goods and services, if something like that happens, that is a major impact. And I think also because, you know, there are countries in the emerging Europe region also that are accession states. So in that sense, also in this uh, process, it's uh, it's one of the... So I would say it, it's very important. That doesn't mean that the institutional path is the only path. It doesn't mean it's the best path. But I think that in the emerging Europe region, it's the most realistic path. It's how our systems function, whether we like it or not. And that, that's something you can't just change overnight, even if you wanted to, you know. So we need to have the institutions do their responsibility and take, and take on their role. Well, you mentioned at some point Malta, and it's actually very interesting to think about Malta, which I believe in 2012 still allowed, well, forbade divorce and then was able to adopt uh, same-sex marriages. But if we look at the map of Europe, the Western part is clearly rainbow, whereas the, you know, the Eastern part, the emerging Europe region is primarily Gray. When do you think we will see more of this rainbow colors in the emerging Europe region? I hope soon, <laughs> but um, I think that we will see it more and more. But it's not gonna happen spontaneously. I think that there are certain things that do come with time. You know, globalization has its impact, right? So in 30 years period, you can see the consequences of globalization. For example, a young LGBT person today has completely different access to information about LGBTIQ plus related topics because of globalized media, right? And because of internet and so on. So of course, this 
can spur faster change on this kind of level, you know, and with generations and so on. However, we also see other trends that are, uh, you know, kind of like going against this uh, because at the same time, you also have a retraditionalization and more aggression against, and you also have the, you know, you have, Exactly that and, and more violence towards LGBT community in, in our countries, which is also supported through, you know, like this kind of network through the Internet, through the same kind of globalization and so on. So I think we have to be very, very weary about this. We have to be very careful. And that's why I'm saying I don't trust in things will happen or we just need to wait and give it some time. No, we have to fight for it. Right. We have to work for it. And I think in that regard, sometimes I have the feeling that the more consolidated democracy or Western countries and so on, they tend to forget how fragile certain things are, both within Western contexts, but also especially as we can see in the emerging Europe region, right? Very, our democracies are weak. And because our democracies are weak, you have very quickly, you end up with an authoritarian government, right? And, And we've seen this in Slovenia. We see it in Hungary. We can see what happens in Poland and so on and so forth. And when you go around our countries and then you see this and what kind of effects it has on politics and uh, the lives of people when it comes to human rights, it's devastating, right? So I don't, so I think that the, the change you talk about, for me, it's on one hand side, one thing is to have this rainbow map, you know, and see what the legislation says. But another level is also how people are able to live, you know, without fear on the street can form their own families and so on. And I think that uh, in order for that to happen, you really need to invest a lot into it. We need to invest money into that. We need to strengthen civil society and LGBT organizations in these countries. We need to support it with international legal frameworks. You know, all of these things need to be happening and real, real investment needs to happen in that, you know, like political investment, financial investment, because the opponents of freedom the opponents of on LGBT rights, they're very organized and they have huge financial flows. The whole discourse around the anti-gender movement, you know, all of these things, they are fueled by very strategic and financed political action coming a lot from the U.S. context and really messing up emerging Europe countries also in this regard, you know, because they shift balance, because they pump in money and they pump in certain fake news and things like this. And it's it's devastating for us because we don't have the tools to really fight it properly. You know, I can imagine the change, but it, we all have to work for it. But we already have some sort of roadmap. Simona, thank you so much for, for this chat. The topic is truly fascinating and we could be talking about it for a long time, but thank you very much for, for today. Thank you. Thank you all for listening, and we look forward to your company for the next episode of Emerging Europe Talks. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and do leave a review. This will help us ensure a regular stream of great guests you want to hear from. And finally, check out our news and analysis platform at emerging-europe.com. Emerging Europe Talks